Chapter One of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. Chapter One. It is September ninth, eighteen thirty-one. The captain left his cabin at six o'clock. The sun is rising, or to speak more exactly. Its light is illuminating the lower clouds in the east, for its disk is still below the horizon. A long, luminous effluence plays over the surface of the sea, which is broken into gentle waves by the morning breeze. After a calm night there is every promise of a fine day, one of those September days in which the temperate zone occasionally rejoices at the decline of the hot season. The captain rests against the skylight of the poop, places the telescope in his right eye, and sweeps the horizon. Lowering the telescope, he approaches the man at the wheel, a gray-bearded, keen-sighted old man, who blinks as he looks at him. When did you come on duty? At four o'clock, sir. The two men speak a language that no European would understand unless he had sailed in a Levant. It is a dialect of Turkish and Syriac. Nothing new? Nothing, sir. And you have sighted no ship since the morning? Only one, a large three-master which would have crossed us on the opposite tack, and I left a point so as to leave her as far off as possible. You did well. And now? The captain looks searchingly round the horizon. Ready about, he shouted loudly. The men on watch ran to their stations. The helm was put down, the sheets were shortened in, the ship came up in the wind and went off on the opposite tack toward the northwest. She was a brigantine of four hundred tons, a merchant vessel used as a yacht. The captain had under his orders a mate and fifteen men, whose jacket and cap and wide trousers and sea boots were those of the mariners of Eastern Europe. There was no name in the brigantine, either under the counter or the bow. There was no flag. To avoid any salute, the brigantine changed her course whenever the lookout reported a sail in sight. Was she then a pirate? For pirates were not unknown in those days in these parts, which feared pursuit. No. A search for arms on board would have been in vain, and it was not with so small a crew that a vessel would run the risk of so dangerous a trade. Was she a smuggler working along the coast or from one island to another? By no means. The keenest custom-house officer might have gone down into her hold, overhauled her cargo, dived into her packages, ransacked her cases, without discovering any dutiable merchandise. To tell the truth, she had no cargo at all. She carried provisions for several years in her hold, and in the lazarette there were three oak casks, strongly hooped with iron. The rest was mere ballast, heavy ballast, to enable her to carry so large a spread of canvas. Perhaps you may think that these three barrels contained powder or some other explosive. Evidently not, for none of the indispensable precautions were taken in entering the storeroom in which they were kept. Besides, not one of the sailors could have given you any information on the subject, neither on the brigantine's destination nor on the motives which made her change her course whenever a ship appeared in sight, nor on the goings to and fro during the fifteen months she had been at sea, nor even of her position at the present moment, sometimes under full sail, sometimes under hardly any at all, sometimes on an inland sea, sometimes on a boundless ocean. During this inexplicable voyage, what highlands had been sighted which the captain had immediately steered away from? What islands had been discovered which the helm at once had shifted to avoid? Looking at the logbook, you would have found the strangest changes of course 
which neither the caprices of the wind nor the appearance of the sky would possibly explain. That was a secret between the captain, a grizzly man of forty-six, and a personage of lofty mien, who at the moment appeared at the companion. Nothing, he asked. Nothing, your excellency, was the reply. A shrug of the shoulders betraying some annoyance terminated this conversation of four words. Then the personage went down the steps and regained his cabin. There he stretched himself on a couch and abandoned himself to a kind of torpor. He could not have been more motionless if sleep had taken possession of him, and yet he was not asleep. He seemed to be under the influence of some fixed idea. He might be fifty years old. His tall stature, his powerful head, his abundant hair with the gray showing in it, his large beard spread over his chest, his black eyes and their keen glances, his proud but evidently gloomy physiognomy, the dignity of his bearing indicated a man of noble birth. A large burnoose braided at the sleeves, fringed with many-colored scales, enveloped him from shoulders to feet, and on his head he wore a greenish cap with a black tassel. Two hours later his breakfast was brought in to him by a boy. It was laid on a rolling table fixed to the floor of the cabin, which was covered with a thick carpet diapered with raised flowers. He scarcely touched the dainty dishes, but devoted his chief attention to the hot and perfumed coffee, served in two small finely chased silver cups. Then an argili was placed before him, crowned with scented fumes, and with the amber mouthpiece between his lips, he resumed his reverie amid the fragrant vapors of Latakia. Part of the day was thus passed, while the brigantine, gently cradled on the billows, continued her uncertain course over the sea. About four o'clock His Excellency rose, took a few turns backwards and forwards, stopped before the light ports opened to the breeze, looked away to the horizon, and stood before a sort of trap-door which was covered by a piece of carpet. This door swung open by pressing the foot of one of the angles, and disclosing the way down into the storeroom beneath the cabin floor. There lay side by side the three casks we had spoken of. The distinguished personage stooped over the trap and remained in this attitude for some seconds, as if the sight of the casks had hypnotized him. Then he stood upright. No, he murmured, no hesitation. If I cannot find an unknown island where I can bury them in secret, it would be better to throw them into the sea. He shut down the trapdoor and replaced the carpet. Then he went to the companion stairs and mounted to the poop. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. There was no change in the weather. The sun was dappled with white clouds. Barely heeling to the gentle breeze, the vessel glided along the port tack, leaving a light lacework of foam to vanish in her wake. His Excellency slowly looked round the clear horizon. Afar off, at a distance of from fourteen to fifteen miles, he could see moderately high land, but there was no sharp ridge to break the line of sea and sky. The captain walking toward him was received by the inevitable, Nothing? which provoked the inevitable reply, Nothing, Your Excellency. The personage remained silent for a few minutes. Then he went off and sat down on one of the seats, while the captain walked to windward, and in an excited way he worked about with his telescope. Captain, he said at last, what does your excellency desire? To know where we are exactly. The captain took a large-scale chart and opened it out on the deck. Here, he answered, pointing with his pencil to where a line of latitude crossed the meridian. At what distance from that island to the east? Twenty-two miles. And from that land? About twenty-six. No one on board knows where we are just now? No one save you and I, your excellency. Not even on what sea we are? We have been sailing so many different courses for so long that the best of seamen could not tell you. 
Ah, why has ill fortune prevented us from reaching some island that has escaped the search of other navigators? Or if not an island, an inlet, or even a rock, which I alone should know the position. There would I bury this treasure, and in the voyage of a few days I can recover it, if ever the time came for me to return. And so saying, he lapsed into silence. With a long look down over the taffrail into the water, which was so transparent that he could see quite eighty feet beneath him, he returned to the captain, and with a certain vehemence exclaimed, I will throw my riches into the sea. It will never give them up again, Your Excellency. Let them perish rather than fall into the hands of my enemies or those who are unworthy of them. As you please. If before tonight we have not discovered some unknown island, those three casks shall be thrown into the sea. Aye, aye, Your Excellency, replied the captain, who at once gave orders to haul a little closer to windward. His Excellency returned to the stern, and, sitting down on the deck, resumed the dreamy state which was habitual to him. The sun was sinking rapidly. At this time of year, a fortnight before the equinox, it was set but a few degrees from the west, that is to say, in exactly the direction the captain was looking. Was there in this direction any high promontory on the shore of the continent, or on some island? Impossible, for the chart showed no island within a radius of from fifteen to twenty miles, and this on a sea well known to navigators. Was this then a solitary rock, a reef rising but a few yards above the surface of the waves, which would serve as the spot which up to then His Excellency had sought in vain as a deposit for his treasure? There was nothing answering to it on the very careful charts of this portion of the sea. An island with the breakers around it, girdled with mist and spray, was not likely to have escaped a sailor's notice. The charts should have shown his true position, and according to the chart he had, the captain could declare that there was not even a reef marked anywhere within sight. It is an illusion, he thought, when he had again brought his telescope to bear on the suspected spot, although he picked it up immediately. In fact, there was nothing so indistinct within the telescope's field of view. At this moment, a few minutes after six, the solar disk was just in the horizon and hissing at the touch of the sea, if we believe what the Iberians used to say. At his setting, and at his rising, refraction still showed his position when he was below the horizon. The luminous rays obliquely projected on the surface of the waves extended as in a long diameter from west to east. The last ripples like rays of fire gleamed beneath the dying breeze. This light suddenly went out as the upper edge of the disk touched the line of water and shot forth its green ray. The hull of the brigantine became dark, while the upper canvas shone purple in the last of the light. As the shades of twilight began to fall, a voice was heard from the bows. Ho there! What is the matter? asked the captain. Land on the starboard bow. Land, and in the direction the captain had been watching the misty outline a few minutes before. He had not been mistaken then. At the shout of the lookout, the men on watch had rushed to the bulwarks and were looking away to the west. The captain, with his telescope slung behind him, grasped the main shrouds and slowly mounted the ratlines to reach the cross trees and there sit astride of them. With his glass at his eye, he looked at the land in sight. The lookout was not mistaken. Six or seven miles away was a small island, its liniments standing out black against the sky. You would have said it was a reef of moderate height, crowned with a cloud of sulfurous vapor. Fifty years later, a sailor would have said it was the smoke of a large steamer passing in the offing. But in 1831, no one imagined that the ocean would one day be plowed by these monsters of navigation. The captain had little time to look at it or think about it. The island was almost immediately hidden behind the evening mist. 
no matter he had seen it and seen it well there's no doubt of that the captain descended to the poop and a distinguished personage whom this incident had awakened from his reverie made a sign for him to approach well yes your excellency land in sight an islet at least at what distance about six miles to the westward and the chart shows nothing in that direction nothing you are sure about that sure it must be an unknown island then i think so is that possible yes your excellency if the islet be of recent formation recent i'm inclined to think so for it appeared to me to be wrapped in vapor in these parts the plutonic forces are often in action and manifest themselves by submarine upheavals i hope what you say is true i cannot wish for anything better than that one of these masses should suddenly rise from the sea it does not belong to anybody or rather your excellency it belongs to the first occupant that would be me then yes to you steer straight for that island straight but careful replied the captain our brigantine would be in danger of being dashed to pieces if the reefs extend far out i propose to wait for daylight to make up the position and then land on the island wait then this was only acting like a seaman it would never do to risk a ship in shoals that were unknown in approaching an unknown coast the night must be avoided and the lead used his excellency went back to his cabin if he slept at all the cabin boy would have no occasion to call him at dawn he would be on deck before sunrise the captain would not leave his post but preferred to watch through the night which slowly passed the horizon became more and more obscure overhead the clouds became invisible as the diffused light left them about one o'clock the breeze increased slightly only sufficient sail was set to keep the vessel under the control of her helm the firmament became lighted by the early constellations in the north polaris gazed gently with a motionless eye while arcturus shone brightly to continue the curve of the great bear on the other side of the pole cassiopeia traced her sparkling w below capella appeared where she had appeared the day before and would appear on the morrow allowing for the four minutes of advance with which her sidereal day begins on the surface of the sea reigned the inexplicable torpor due to the fall of the night the captain resting on his elbow in the bow never moved from the windlass against which he leant motionless he thought only of the spot which he could see through the gloom he doubted still and the darkness made the doubts more serious was he the sport of an illusion was this really a new islet risen from the sea yes certainly he knew these parts he had been here a hundred times before he had fixed his position within a mile and eight or ten leagues were between him and the nearest land but if he was not mistaken if in this spot an island had risen from the sea would it not be already taken possession of had not some navigator hoisted his flag on it was there no gleam of a fire indicating that this place was inhabited it was possible that this mass of rocks had been there for some weeks and how could it have escaped a sailor's notice hence the captain's uneasiness and his impatience for the daylight he saw nothing to indicate the islet's position not even the reflection of the vapors which seemed to envelop it and which might have thrown a fuliginous hue on the darkness everywhere the air and the water were mingled in the same obscurity the hours rolled by the circumpolar constellations had described a quarter circle around the axis of the firmament about four o'clock the sky began to brighten in the east-northeast and a few clouds came into view overhead 
Two hours and more were still to run before the sun rose, but in such a light an experienced mariner could find the reported island, if it existed. At this moment the distinguished personage came on deck and approached the captain. "'Well, this islet?' he asked. "'There it is, Your Excellency,' replied the captain, pointing to a heap of rocks less than two miles away. "'Let us land there.' "'As you wish.' End of chapter 1